After the remaining Wittenberg reformers raced ahead while Luther was in the Wartburg Castle, things began to edge closer and closer to violence. Although Wittenberg was ground zero for the reform movement in the 16th century, it was still home to many priests, monks, and laity who were not comfortable with the changes proposed by the reformers. When Luther was in Wittenberg, their disagreements remained within the confines of discussion and debate. After Luther was in hiding for six months, things began to change. The remaining Wittenberg reformers began to force the changes on the priests and laity, sometimes through edict, but often through threats and even violence. When Luther returned, he was not pleased. He had to return things to good order, and he had to do it quickly. Just a couple of days after his arrival, Luther began a sermon series that addressed the issues that had arisen. The name of the eight sermon series is the Invocavit Sermons. Given over eight days during the first week of Lent in 1522, the Invocavit Sermons shaped the implementation of the reform changes in Wittenberg and still speak to us today. I'm Evan Gertner. And I'm Mike Yeagley. And this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to a discussion on the history and the theology of the Lutheran Reformation, all over a nice cold beer. So, how about some background? In December of 1521, Luther is still hidden away at the Wartburg Castle. Andreas Karlstadt, the dean of the faculty there at Wittenberg, has placed himself at the head of the Reform Movement in Wittenberg. And over the course of the next three months... So we got December, January, February, March, and March is going to lead us up to when Luther returns. Over these three months, Karlstadt implemented several radical reforms. Yeah, Luther returns like March 6th or something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's early March. And so, yeah, it's really December, January, and February. It's amazing how quickly Karlstadt moves at, at making these changes. So some of the changes that he's making are he's he's giving uh, communion in both the bread and the wine, which was something Luther had talked about for for years, mm-hmm. and but he he was holding off on actually implementing. It had already started inside of the monastery, uh, but to do this in a, a space where the laity were and others. Um, the other challenge that Karlstadt introduces was declaring that confession of sins uh, to a priest was not ne- not necessary prior to receiving communion. Uh, he has uh, rules of fasting aren't binding. Images like paintings and statutes were not allowed in the church. Now that last one was <laughs> that was they started practically rioting. I mean, the the the, the folks when they heard breaking this, of stained glass, knocking down a number of statues from this time period um, are still on display. Uh, but with their heads cut off or their hands knocked off. Yeah, yeah, they were trying to show that these weren't alive, that this was, they had no power, so they cut, they cut off their hands, they cut off their head. And, and a number of these um, pieces of artwork were donated by rich people in order to make payment for their sins. And so the imagery of the artwork wasn't just um, an act of iconoclasm, of destroying icon imagery. Also, there's meaning behind the destruction of this. Right, because for Andreas Karlstadt, he was concerned that all this artwork was a reminder of how people had been trying to pay for their salvation. Each plaque, each piece of side altar uh, that was donated by such and such a family is a reminder that those people thought they could earn their way to heaven Uh. by buying this stuff. So uh, a couple more, uh, th- and this one really shocked me, uh, taught that it was possible to have direct illumination of the truth through the Holy Spirit. 
That one, I, I guess I, I know most of It's a movement to... of authority away from the church is what it is. So Karlstadt's trying to take the middleman of the priest away from what is necessary oh. knowledge to be able to hear God. At okay, work. so that's not as radical as I. That's it, not it, like it, what Munzer was. Right, from. it's not like the swarmeri, the buzzing bees of the enthusiasts, that, of those traveling preachers that say they have the spirit, but rather Karlstadt's uh, just speaking to the fact that the Holy Spirit can be present in each person as they read the ah, scriptures okay, and give okay. them the authority to interpret the scriptures. Okay, that makes more sense. Uh, and then there was a growing question about infant baptism. And that was that was the last one. Carl starts started asking that question. He hadn't made, come to a conclusion yet. But and the reason doing... Carl starts doing this in December of 1521 is because in December of 1521, Luther had returned secretly to Wittenberg from the Warburg for a three-day conference on how to meet the turbulence and confusion caused by the radical reformers. Okay. And so soon after his return to the Warburg, Carl Stott, um takes that mini-conference as permission to bring all these changes about. And really, I suppose you could say Luther was still at the stage where he was talking about the philosophy of how to fish. And uh, Carl Stott, let's just go start fishing right away. Yeah. And then yeah. he was still, Luther was still at that spot of, well, let's talk about what tackle, what gear, what stuff do we need to bring about these changes to avoid turbulence, to avoid confusion. And Carl Stott just ignores any he sort of... He just barrels ahead. He just barrels ahead. Just so that. any word of caution, he throws out. Yeah, time to party. Let's go. So the uh, um, so then, the, the you know, Luther responds to all this, uh, amongst other things that are going on. He returns to Wittenberg on March 6th, 1522. And Frederick the Wise doesn't want him there. You know, Frederick the Wise is like, hey, you know, things are still too hot. You know, stay stay where you're at. Let's thing, let things cool down a little bit more. Because Luther has been declared a heretic, an outlaw, and so when he returns to public spaces in Wittenberg, he is placing pressure on Frederick to maintain um, protection of him. So Luther tries to make jokes about coming back, right? He's 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 call he sends a letter to to Frederick the Wise. And he, he says, what, uh, let's see. Grace and joy from God the Father on the acquisition of a new relic. Without cost or effort, God is now sending your grace an entire cross complete with nails, spears, and scourges. <laughs> so, Meaning Luther's arriving as a cross to bear. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know. Frederick, nah, he, he's not he, laughing. He didn't think that was so funny. He, so, Frederick, what does he do? Well, he wrote back uh, and he, he admitted he didn't know what to do. And so, uh, but he asked Luther to stay where he was. Because from December 1521 till March 6, when Luther does arrive, those three months are quite turbulent in Wittenberg. And Frederick knows that something has to happen, but he hopes it doesn't require Luther's presence. One of the things that Frederick really didn't want in Luther's communication with him, Luther wrote to him and said, hey, let's have a face-to-face discussion. And Frederick, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. No face-to-face, because that eliminates any sort of plausible deniability that Frederick has about knowing what is going on with Luther. Right. He's just, he wants to be the innocent bystander. He's just, you know, this is, and what he keeps saying, this is all too lofty for me. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just a simple farm boy, you know, or something like this. I'm a simple, I'm a simple elector, you know, but he's not really interested in getting into this. So... Well, Luther, when he hears back from Frederick, and Frederick asks him not to come, Frederick says, you know, but he doesn't know what to do. Luther takes that as, oh, good, you didn't say no. Right. So, I can come. He just sort of, and that's sort of this, we've seen this before, where Luther's getting actually pretty good at reading through the 
reading you know, reading between the lines and realizing that Frederick has an outright and said you're prohibited from coming. So that must mean I am encouraged to come. Yeah. Yeah, so it's that sort of, you know, political speak that that everybody is engaging in. Luther's getting better and better at that. So Luther leaves the Wartburg March 2nd and he arrives in Wittenberg on March 6th. Now, the, when he arrives, the first thing that happens is the city council goes out to meet him, right? And they're, they're all happy to have him back. And they give him a new robe to wear. Yeah, a new cowl, which he, uh, I don't know, maybe he left it because he was been acting like a knight for the last 10 months or something. But so he's he's got a new a new cowl. Uh, and, and his first job when he gets back is to write a letter to Frederick the Wise and sort of frame it up that to make sure that everybody knows that Frederick had nothing to do with Luther coming back. And, you know, that's very important politically for Frederick to maintain his position of neutrality. Yeah. So, so he, Luther starts writing this and he's going back and forth with, um, was it Spalatin? Yeah. So Spalatin is Frederick's, uh, kind of chief chaplain, lawyer, uh, liaison between Luther and Frederick. And so as much as Frederick the Wise and Luther are never recorded to have met face to face, Splayton would talk to Frederick and then would go talk to Luther. And that's how they would know what each other was thinking. And Splayton is then counseling Luther on how to to uh, kind of write back to Frederick and how to introduce yourself back to Frederick after all this happening. So supposedly this went through many, many uh, revisions and they finally got it right. And then they sent the letter off to Frederick. And And then Frederick shows it to his cousin, Duke George. Now Duke George hates Luther. Yeah. And and so just kind of geography reference, uh, Frederick is the head of electoral Saxony and Duke George is the head of Ducal Saxony. And Ducal Saxony begins right around Leipzig. And if you go if you look at a map, Leipzig or Leipzig is not very far from Wittenberg. So they're they're pretty close, but you know, and you know, they're 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 right next door to each other. So Frederick is gonna show the letter to his cousin uh, so that his cousin can approve, uh, accept, recognize that Frederick had nothing to do with Luther returning. And Duke George says you're right. You had nothing to do with Luther's return. I buy it. And this uh, allows Frederick to maintain his political space in the Holy Roman Empire and not be himself classed as an outlaw. Now, what's what's amazing is that at the same time that this all this work is going into writing this letter, Luther's also in the process of writing the in, Invocavit sermons, right? That's how it's pronounced, right. in, Invocavit. So in in the invocat and invocavit is the the traditional name for the first day of Lent. Is that it's it? it's the traditional name for the first Sunday of Lent uh, because of Psalm ninety one verse fifteen, which is the opening lines for the introit. So the introit is that piece of the liturgy uh, that is the word introit means entrance. It's the entrance hymn to Lent. Okay. And so Psalm ninety one verse fifteen is when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. And so that invocavit uh, comes from that opening line, when he calls to me. Okay. And so uh, often the Sundays in the liturgical calendar uh, were named by the first line of the introit, because those would be the opening words of the that service. I see. So, so we have the invocavit sermons. So at the same time Luther is writing this very important letter to Frederick, He's also writing this very important eight sermons, 
eight sermons that are going to be given over eight days. Uh, at Trying the, to restore order to Wittenberg. And that's um, all in, in like two days this happens. I mean, he arrives March 6th, and the first of the Invocavit sermons is March 8th. Right. And so on March 8th, um, he meets with Philip Melanchthon, Justice Jonas, Nicholas Amsdorf, and Hieronymus Scherf to put the finishing touches on the sermons. And this is kind of one of those reminders that the, this is that um, Wittenberg group of men, uh, the, the Bible Collegium, uh, the, this kind of fraternity of men that forms, that counsels and guides and encourages Luther in the rest of his ministry. When we think of Luther and how he interpreted scripture, it's always helpful to know he did this uh, with an exchange of ideas and conversation and, and figuring out phrases that would happen with these men gathered around the table. So Now, who wasn't there at this meeting? Andreas Karlstadt. So Andreas Karlstadt is not in the inside group anymore. Now, earlier we had talked about the changes. Let's just re- remind ourselves of the changes. Uh, giving communion in both kinds of bread and wine. Declaring that confession was not necessary prior to communion. Rules of fasting are no longer binding. Images like painting and statutes not being allowed in the church. It's possible to have direct illumination of truth through the Holy Spirit of what the scriptures say. No longer do you need a priest to tell you what the scriptures say. In fact, uh, Karlstadt would even say, no longer do you need any... Uh, scholastic learning. You don't need scholars. You don't need uh, to be smart. To You can just, by reading the scriptures, the, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and give you the correct reading of what the scriptures say. So earlier I had said, you know, he was largely just getting rid of the priest as the interpreter of scripture. He was even getting rid of any sort of intellectualism. So uh, part of what happens in Wittenberg and what upsets Frederick Dwight so much is that this attack on intellectualism that Karlstadt undertakes causes all the city schools in Wittenberg to be closed and students are leaving the university and Frederick Dwight's prized possession, the University of Wittenberg, is mm. in threat of being collapsed because Karlstadt has essentially said, uh, you don't need the priest, you don't need a scholar, you don't need anybody. You can understand this all on your own. You can understand it all on your own. Now, I would agree that there, the, the word for it, which is oddly hard to say and know, the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity <laughs> of Scripture is yeah, true. I'm sorry, but that's worth a drink. <laughs> now, although I have to tell you, it's not Latin. I know, but it's worth a drink. But the perspicuity of Scripture is just that that confession of faith that we have, that the Scriptures, through the work of the Holy Spirit, are clear and convincing to those who are guided by God to read them. And okay. So even Luther says that's true about the Scriptures, that God's Word is made clear and plain to all of us. But Luther is like, you still have to know grammar. You still have to know the words. You still have to know the places. You still need to know these things in order to see what they're saying. And Karlstadt's like, yeah, you don't need any of that. Oh. And so you start to see among Karlstadt's followers, uh, the Zwickau prophets and uh, other adherents of Thomas Munzer are starting to maybe even take what Karlstadt's saying and maybe taking it even further. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and we'll see that, I think, in a future episode is how far they take it. It's really amazing. So, but let's get back to So Karlstadt's not at the meeting. Yeah, he's being drummed out a little bit, you know. And, and that's and amazing that, I mean, just a week before, two weeks before, he was the leader. And now he's not He's not welcome. So Saturday, March 8th, they meet together. And, and on, it's actually March 9th, so there's three days. I, well, no, I, but on March 8th, they meet together. Yeah. And on March 9th is when the first sermon's preached. Okay, okay. but And, and March 8th, they put the finishing touches on the sermon. Mm-hmm. So the sermon is done on March. So in two days... Sixth to the eighth, yeah. he's got the sermons down. I'm guessing uh, he, 
I wonder if he writes all eight at once. I'm guessing he has like the big outline. He says to guys, this is where we're headed. What do you think? Like, well, make sure you do this first, do that second. Um, you're saying that, are you sure that connects to this? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not sure of the writing process of it. Yeah. I don't know how you write a sermon uh, with a group of people, but this is, this is obviously an important sermon. And so, you know, they're a series of sermons. And so they all contribute to it and make sure it's all tight. Now, keep in mind where he preaches it as well. Because his goal is to influence the community, the city. And, and because a lot of this so far has just been in the confines of academia. In Wittenberg, there are two main churches. There is the Castle Church, uh, which is mainly the chapel for the university. Okay. And the, the Castle, uh, having just been to Wittenberg... A few months ago, um, the castle church is at one end of the city. It's at, at the far end of the city from uh, from Luther's home, basically. And on the other end of the city is the Augustinian monastery where Luther lives. And then in between them is the city church. Yeah. And at the city church, which is the main church for the city of Wittenberg, Luther preaches the sermon. So he doesn't preach it at the castle church. Not to the intellectuals. This is Not going to, to the, the laity, to the regular is, folks. Exactly. And so the first of the eight sermons is delivered on March 9th in Volkovit Sunday at the City Church in Wittenberg. Now we'll post on, we can get this onto the, uh, onto the website that we have a link to the Invocavit. It's available on the web. Mm -hmm. You can download a PDF of the eight sermons that, or just look up eight sermons Wittenberg and it's, Really good. It's good stuff and very simple. But it's it, we'll we'll start diving into. It's a this. great demonstration of how Luther preached uh, with um, uh, a good understanding of rhetoric. It has a structure. Um, he is not just a wandering preacher. He knows what he wants to say, and he has structured his sermon to communicate what he wants to say. That's a pretty tight. It's a pretty tight series of eight sermons, and so well, it's funny. That well, the first sermon really touches off with a great sense of comedy and an introduction to characters and. No, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> no, the the first sermon. What is the first line, Mike? The first line uh, is a it's an attention attention grabber. It's it says, "The summons of death comes to us all." Now, <laughs> that's not a funny opener not, to draw everyone into the discussion. No, but it does yeah, set the tone. I, I was yeah, it certainly sets the tone. It's funny. I was uh, I'm I'm reading that. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I I haven't been to a sermon that gave us an opening line like that. I think in my whole life, you know, uh, this most of the hey, you know, they have those funny stories or you know they sort of or even maybe just introducing the the Bible text. I uh, know it's just you all are gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> I love how it makes you laugh. <laughs> I just think that's funny. I, don't know. I just I can imagine a, a, a pastor today doing that. I, you know, half the people go, "Okay, I'm out of here. I'm done." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's such. A, I mean, it really but is. Why a, is he so serious? Well, and, and he explains it. He says, "Everyone must himself be prepared for the time of death. For I will not be with you then, nor you with me. Therefore, every one of you must himself know and be armed with the chief things which concern a Christian." And these are what you, my beloved, have heard from me many days ago. So it really is. I mean, this is very serious stuff that he's getting. And this is the foundation for the whole eight sermons. And, and so it's, but he, he really, I mean, I can imagine, you know, everybody's there. They're there. It's like the first sermon, Luther, the great Luther is back. It's the first sermon he's giving when he comes back after 10 months. There's a lot of excitement. And it's and also he, the beginning of Lent. It's a, 
the beginning of a, a time of obedience to uh, suffering, and also a time that's uh, very much defined by fasting. And and preparing for the arrival of the cross. Yeah. Uh, so he is going to it, define for them all what this Lent is going to be like. It, it's really appropriate. It's, I mean, I, I laughed about it because I, I just, I've never heard. I, I've just, I can't recall a sermon I heard that started like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just so foreign to me. I can't help but, you know, chuckle a little bit, but it's good stuff. It's really, it's, this is, this is really getting to the heart of Christianity. And that's where he starts. He starts with with the the you know what that great question what must I do to be saved and he's, and how he's, should I hold my brother Christian accountable as well so not only what am I going to do but what should I expect of others yeah so it's it's a he's he's starting out he grabs them with this critical question for all Christians and so this is he's going to give his answers here and it's in a very straightforward way so we're going to spend some time going through these sermons in detail today. Yeah. And so in the first sermon, Luther identifies the four chief teachings of the church. The first one is, we are all children of wrath. All our works, intentions, and thoughts are nothing at all. Uh, it's a, just a, a strong beginning that basically says there is no foundation upon which we can stand and push our way up towards God um, we can't say I've built an altar. We can't say I've given a foundation for masses. We can't say I know all those other people and what they've done wrong, but I have done these things. Don't you understand what a good member of the community I've been? There's nothing. We are all children of wrath. Yeah, it's really, and, and even though Luther has been preaching for three years in, in Wittenberg, you, I, I, having come from a Catholic background, you don't lose that stuff overnight. Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, when when you are raised Catholic and all the fasting and all. I mean, to this day, I, I do some of that stuff. But that's that's um, it's it, it's very uh, um, uh, you know it, it's it's very works righteous. That works righteousness really gets into your your bones, and mm-hmm. the, the the folks in the in those pews are you know those relics are meaningful to them. And the the pilgrimages are meaningful to them, even though they've been taught for several years now. So this is this is really hitting them where they live. And so he starts with the law, and then secondly, uh, he goes on to say that God has sent His only begotten Son, that we may believe in Him, and that whoever trusts in Him shall be free from sin and a child of God. So it, when Luther touches on on the gospel there. It's interesting that he claims that there are others in Wittenberg who are more learned than himself uh, when it comes to ta- talking about those first two points, the, the first point of the law and then the second point of the gospel. He, he's, he, he mentions within the sermon that, yeah, there's other folks here that can teach this better than me. So we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because, well, you all know it and we, you've even when I was gone, you were getting this message. And so for him, the children of wrath, children of God, we know this stuff is essentially what he says. Yeah. But thirdly, we also must have love and through love, we must do to one another as God has done to us through faith. Um, recently, I had I'd read a thing that said there are two kind of atheists. There are those who say out loud, there is no God. And the second kind of atheist is the one who lives as if there is no God. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's part of what he's now getting at in the in the third and fourth part of this opening sermon is, all right, so if you know you're a child of wrath and you know you're a child of God through God sending his only begotten son in Jesus Christ to uh, make amends for your sins, 
What about love? It's sort of like the mirror image of the atheist comment you just made. You know, there are people who say they're Christians, but there are people who live like they are Christians. Mm -hmm. That's a big difference, just like the atheist side. Um, so, and he goes, he, he says, uh, he gives a quote from, uh, James, God does not want hearers and repeaters of words, but followers and doers. And this incur occurs in faith through love. So he, he, then he, he reprimands the congregation. He, he essentially knocks him down a few notches and says, I see no signs of love among you. And I observe very well that you have not been grateful to God for his rich gifts and treasures. So he's really walking a really tight, he's walking on a tight rope here, mm -hmm. right? Because that, that, so he's that, told them their works don't make them right with God, but then he starts to say, you don't have enough works. Yeah. Yeah. And it really is a, a tight rope because, but it gets back to the Lutheran doctrine of, you know, when, when, when the gospel takes root in our hearts, we do good works naturally. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's, he's demanding good works, but not, not, as a response to the of God's love is what he's trying to say, and and if you're not responding with love, you know. and, and now the love challenge here in Wittenberg is not that uh, there are a bunch of atheists being cruel to other people, but in fact his concern is those who, in the name of Jesus, are attacking weaker brothers and sisters and telling them they're not strong enough and, and they're not doing enough, and so his attack about not seeing love is directed towards Andreas Karlstadt. And he's directed towards all those others that have been attacking their weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, and it's funny. I mean, we see this today. There are many, you know, when, when we know that we're right, it's easy to just drive a truck right through that, you know, that, that it's like, I'm right. I'm just going to drive right through and not have any care for what I run over. You know, I can't and, wait for these people to figure out what they should be doing. I'm just going to tell them what they should be doing and tell them why they're so wrong. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, so the yeah. fourth part of this sermon is really where he spends more of his time. And that's where he gets, starts getting into patience, the need for patience. He says, for whoever has faith, trusts in God and shows love to his neighbor, practicing it day by day, uh, must needs suffer persecution. And so he's, he's talking about the need for patience in the face of persecution, because when you're loving your neighbor, uh, that's that's going to come. That you're going to be persecuted is what he's saying, and, and and so here Luther's making the point about love for those who are struggling with these changes, love with those people who are, who are still wanting to take communion with only the bread, um, or love for those who are saying I must speak confession uh, to a priest before I take communion. Having love for these who are struggling. And when he when he says they're going to be persecuted, the the more we'll say the more mature Christians are going to be persecuted. Let's let's say that somebody let's say that the majority of the people in the church uh, are very uncomfortable with the bread and the wine. They're just you know, they don't they think this is wrong. They're not happy about it. They think that you know, and so you have some people who take the wine. They're not demanding anybody else takes the wine, but they're taking it for themselves, which is they're they're trusting God God's word. And so they're going to be persecuted. They're going to be called, you know, there's going to be, you know, potentially, you know, where people might say, you know, what, what are you doing? You know, that's who gave you the authority to receive the wine. Sort yeah. Of thing. So you're one of those, eh? you know, and, and so there's when he's talking about persecution, it's it's that kind of thing where you're going to find yourself, the you know, getting on the that sense of everybody in the pew examining 
and um, treacherously uh, looking at each person and trying to figure out what's in their heart. Yeah. And persecuting when we assume what's in their heart. Yeah. And yeah. so Luther, I think it's it's a remarkable thing to think about, but that persecution is God's preferred method for the development of faith. When we find ourselves persecuted and we learn the only thing we can rely upon is by faith, trusting that God will keep his promises and that I cannot look to those authorities or those who are in charge or to anybody else to keep me safe, that the only one who will keep me safe is God. Uh, that's a moment where faith is developed or is shown to be a fraud. Yeah. Yeah, it's so Luther says, thus faith by much affliction and persecution ever increases and is strengthened day by day. A heart thus blessed with virtues can never rest or restrain itself, but rather pours itself out again for the benefit and service of the brethren, brethren just as God has done to it. And so there is an expectation that our patience in the servants of our brothers will result in discomfort, at least, and possibly even persecution. So then Luther goes on. Uh, to some specific discussion on the abolition of the mass, because this was something that was going back and forth when Luther, obviously for, again, years he was saying, you know, we need to abolish the mass. There, this isn't a good work that the priest is doing and all that. We've had a lot of discussions on that in this podcast. And he says, so therefore all who have erred and have helped and consented to abolish the mass, not that it was not a good thing, but that it was not done in an orderly way, you say it was right according to scriptures. I agree. But what becomes of order? For it was done in wantonness, with no regard for proper order and with offense to your neighbor. So this is getting to how reform change happens inside of a congregation. And Luther says, you are right. The scriptures give us the authority to do this. That there are things that are wrong in the life of our church. But the question is, how do we change it? So he's saying, basically, you know, by showing love and patience and using the proper processes, and that proper processes thing is a big part of this, um, along with the backing of scripture, we can be certain we're going to be doing God's will. And so that's, that's uh, that the abolition of mass is a perfect example of this. And we can certainly, by coercion, require, through threats and other maneuvers, require someone to do something. But how much longer they will do it after that threat is removed... Well, they won't do it. As soon as the threat or the coercion has gone, they'll revert back to what they had thought previously. Yeah. And so I think one of the things Luther is doing is asking the question, how do we make the change of the gospel and the way it pra affects the practices of the congregation, how do we make those changes more permanent? And he certainly is convinced it will not happen by, by force. By force. So then he fin it says, okay, well, if you want to make these changes, go through the proper channels, go through the city council, which I guess the at that time the city council had say over these things, uh, and and work through it by the processes. And and so that, that makes sense. You know, they're, use the standard processes that are in place, whatever they are. And, and so then he starts to make this distinction of like, well, where do we draw this line between those things that we are going to do no matter what anybody says and those things... We are going to be patient and loving and changing. And he uses the, the thought of what are musts and what are things of freedom. A must are things that are non-negotiable. Non like the fact that we are going to proclaim faith in Jesus Christ as what brings us salvation because we trust in Christ as our Savior. That's a must. You, you, we can't just set that aside. And then a free are the things where we have a choice, where we can do it or not, where we can use it or not use it. Um, depending on what is best for our brother or sister. How can we help our brother and sister nurturing the faith that they have in Jesus Christ as their Savior? Does this help them 
Or does this hurt them? Now, when I was reading through the Envil Covet sermon, this first sermon, I got, personally, I got confused. You know, because I thought that I wasn't clear what he was saying about the Mass. You know, the Mass, was it was it a free? Or, you know, or was it a must? Which, which category was he putting it in? And I'll be frank, you know, at, at the end of this first sermon, I still wasn't quite clear on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so... Uh, he seems to place the mass at least at this time in the category of free, uh, while they work uh, while they work to calm the consciences of those who are unwilling to give up the mass. But in Babylon, Babylonian captivity and the open letter to the Christian nobility, it was very clear that the mass should be abolished. So I, I'm I was I was sort of murky. Well, keep in mind he doesn't change for another couple of years even the liturgy for the the service. Okay. And when he's speaking of mass, he's thinking of that canon of things that are said by the priest in instituting the Lord's Supper. Okay. And and the joining of the work of Christ to the sacrifice of the saints and and all of this and and for him um the fact that we are able to preach the gospel and deliver to people uh the confidence that Christ is present in this meal for the forgiveness of your sins is at the same time being held in parallel with the liturgy that is telling them that this is a sacrifice, an unbloody sacrifice for their sins. So he is allowing the existence of both the preaching of the gospel and the instituting of the Lord's Supper with the traditional liturgy at the same time. Yeah, and like I said, he's 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 spoken out very strongly in the past. He's like this. I never, I wouldn't have thought this was under the category of quote unquote free. I thought this was going to be a must. I would I I probably would have gone. I probably would have sided with Karlstadt on this. That mm-hmm. you know, Jesus, you've come out so strongly in the past. You know, how can you call this free at this time? So, but we'll see that he starts getting into that with the second sermon. So, let's take a break. Yeah, we've got our beer break coming up, right? So this is this is train wreck. Trainwreck, uh, uh, it's uh, uh, Trainwreck uh, Imperial Stout by, uh, this is Mountain Town Station Brewing Company uh, in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. And, uh, or, yeah, they, I think they were, used to be called like the Mount Pleasant Brewing Company, but they had to change their name uh, okay. to, uh, to, for legal reasons. because I would imagine a lot of these guys start off not thinking too much about trademark or other legalities. Well, actually, this one was, when I, I was reading up on it, they, they had a problem because the Mount Pleasant Brewing Company was a brew pub, mm-hmm. and brew pubs can't distribute. Ah. And so they had to have a different entity as a distributor of beer. And so the Soaring Eagle Casino up there near Mount Pleasant uh, wanted to sell their beer because it's very popular, especially this this train wreck uh, was very popular. And they they... They were selling it to Soaring Eagle for a while, and then they got their <laughs> they got their hands slapped, and they had to go and they have to create a new a new business basically to sell it to distribute it, and then the whole thing took off. They start now they had a distribution system, and it's really taken off. They're they're uh, they're pretty popular now. This is it's actually a good beer. I, I see you're, you're almost. I'm almost done. <laughs> you're almost done. <laughs> Now these aren't. Well, we actually shared this beer with. Was, we usually share beer between the two of us. This one we we also shared with Josh, just because it's a little bit stronger. It's a little bit stronger, and uh, and so there's we just have a little splash. It's a good taste in beer. It's a it's a little bit. It's um. I, it's it's like I guess I would say it's sort of like a, a mild IPA. A very mild IPA is how I would 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say this. I would. I would. I think it has it. a lot of sugars that sit on my tongue, like an IPA would. Yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, it's it's a good brew. I I really enjoy this. Um, let's see. Uh, Mountain Town uh, Brewing Company is started by Jim and Karen Holton, uh, and uh, up in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. Uh, there, they really. This was something that, like I said earlier, there was a, it was a beer that they made for their little their little steakhouse and and brew pub and it was just sort of for that and they sort of took off in the in the area and now it's it's pretty popular you'll see this around around michigan and i think it's actually going out beyond michigan into ohio and this this region and this one is made with michigan honey and maple syrup as well oh that's where the sugars that you were talking about it's it is it's a it's a 8.2 uh percent alcohol so it's it's a little bit stronger than most of them that we're drinking it's good stuff, though. I'm, uh, I, I, they say here, American stout with chocolate notes. I, you know, I'm not tasting the chocolate notes. How about you? Are you tasting the chocolate? I don't know, Mike. I It's beer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the end, I can say I taste this uh, in the front of my throat, the back of my tongue. I don't know. It's beer. <laughs> it's beer. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm not picking up the chocolate. It's it's a good beer. Uh, like I said, it's it's sort of like a really if you like IPAs, yes. if you like IPAs, this is like a really mild IPA, which is nice. Yeah. It's it's a it's a nice flavor, a nice finish. I, I really like it. So, uh, good beer, and let's. Uh, I think that we'll have a short a short beer break this time since we're almost done with our beer already. <laughs> Okay, I, I do have to think it's kind of funny that it's Mountain Town. I don't think of anywhere in Michigan as a mountain <laughs> town, but well, you know uh, they have the mountain uh, porcupine mountains up yeah. in the UP, but yeah, Lower Peninsula they call us uh, uh, you know mountain folk you know and uh, on the East Coast and on the West Coast, they call us flatlanders here yeah. you know and it's pretty pretty accurate you know it's pretty flat around here. So anyway, let's let's get back to this. So, so the second sermon is preached March tenth, fifteen twenty two, the Monday after Invocavit's Sunday, and uh, Martin Luther uh, begins the sermon by saying, "Dear friends, you heard yesterday the chief characteristic characteristics of a Christian man: that his whole life and being is faith and love. Faith is directed toward God, love toward man and one's neighbor, and consists in such love and service for Him as we have received from God without our work and merit." So basically, in that short sentence, he's defining the musts, the two big musts, which faith is toward God, must non-negotiable, have, non-negotiable faith toward God, must love thy neighbor. Now, those are the two musts. And the love for our neighbor is defined by the love we have received from God. Without work or merit that our neighbor deserves our love, we simply love them um, out of the graciousness of God. So, so that makes sense. So now he's going back... And he goes back onto the, into the discussion on the on the mass to illustrate this, and and I was really thankful that he did that because, like I said, at the last when I when I left off on uh, after reading the first sermon, I was I was a little murky. Mm-hmm. So in the second sermon, he restates what he already said in both the Babylonian captivity and the open letter. Uh, the idea that the mass is a good work performed by us for God is evil, is what he says. And the truth is that worship and communion is a gift of, from God to us. So, so he's, he's outlining what, he's just restating what he said in, in previous discussions. Um, and then he, he agrees with the reformers that, that the mass needs to be abolished. This idea that the mass is something that we do for God needs to go. But and, then... And as he points out these things that 
as uh, we think about abolishing the mass, he clarifies on how love is going to guide this process. And so he says, let us act with fear and humility, cast ourselves at one another's feet, join hands with each other and help one another. And I will do my part, which is no more than my duty, for I love you even as I love my own soul. For here we battle not against Pope or Bishop, but against the devil. And do you imagine that he is asleep? He sleeps not. And so Luther here is challenged with this, uh, a different foe. His foe is no longer uh, the Pope or the Bishop that are in some other community. Right here in their midst, he is concerned that the devil is sowing seeds of hatred and, and, and discontent among one another. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, I, I liked this quote. He says, Yet Christian love should not employ harshness here nor force the matter. However, it should be preached and taught with tongue and pen that to hold mass in such a manner is sinful, and yet no one should be dragged away from it by the hair. For it should be left to God, and his word should be allowed to work alone without our work or interference. So here's the image that he draws with these words, that you are at a church and you see someone worshiping um, with a flawed view of the Mass. And he says, yes, it's flawed, but that doesn't give you permission to drag that person away from that altar by their hair, telling them, I'm helping you for your own good. I mean, (laughs) we will not help that person by dragging them away from uh, the altar by their hair. Yeah, and I'm curious. You know, I mean, you you were a pastor through the. I mean, the worship wars continue, right? Yeah. It's, it, the there's this the worship wars for those of you who aren't into the whole concept of worship, or the 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 there's the contemporary service, there's the traditional service. You have these two groups that, at least in every church I've been at, seem at, at each other's throats all the time. Uh, not maybe that strongly. I think there, there's, there, a there's a detente in every church I've I've been at. There is, is certainly now become this piece that just says, you stay in your corner, I'll stay in my corner. Occasionally we might have services that we share. But as you, if you let me have my service, I'll let you have your service. Yeah. I, uh, um, that's I, the, what's existed inside of congregations. Now I know um, there are some pastors who will not participate in communion if they know that that pastor has allowed contemporary worship at his church. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, because they believe that that pastor is supporting um, a, a, an experiential-based worship service that calls upon faith to be an act of the person's experience rather than the work of God. And and so they attack that pastor by not participating in communion with him. So where I am seeing the worship wars is no longer inside of congregations. Okay. Um, I think that congregations have kind of compartmentalized themselves, and they each person goes to a church knowing what they're getting at that church. Yeah. There is still um, an activity of worship wars among pastors. There will be those pastors who say you have to worship in a, a traditional way that doesn't have an over-reliance on experience, uh, experience. Um, because we don't want to give any hint that faith is uh, comes from, nourishes, or gr- grows through the experience the person has, but is entirely the work of God through the Word. And then there are other pastors who will say that the worship at our church needs to be vibrant and alive and give demonstration to the activity of the Spirit by allowing people the space to experience the Word. So essentially, the worship war is not about 
whether there's a guitar or there's an organ. But it's about which one emphasizes faith as an activity of experience and which one emphasizes faith as an activity of the word of God being delivered. And, and it's sort of funny because it's almost a lot of the same stuff we're reading about here. It is. Uh, because you know, when Luther talks about love, you know, there, there's the... There, love must be present, he says. There yeah. must be an experience of love. Yeah. And, and so it, it's... There's, there's, you know, so love, does love come before faith or does love come after as a response to faith? And that's the critical point. Does, does love, is, is love toward neighbor something we do for God that actually, you know, uh, then he, he has this indwelling of faith and then we, or is, is love a, a response to God's love shown to us first? And it's this critical dichotomy, this critical definition of what, at what point in the process are we, are we, showing our love and why are we showing our love and this is and it's almost the same thing where you know well why are we having this contemporary music why are we having this joyful sound is it in response or is it something that is ahead of the game you know where Mm -hmm. where it's something that's feeding that i have to create this experience so that this person wants to be here um is attracted to this church and things like that yeah and i think that um, I, I've been blessed to be at churches where the worship wars just are settled matters. I'm a little bit older than you, so I I, I was there, you know, and yeah, it was when when it was in the laity, you know, it, I, I I sat through some council meetings that yeah. that weren't pretty. Well, and I I have found that there are people at at St. Paul that you know because we have two services and one's a little bit more contemporary than the other service, and, and there will be people who will not ever come to the later service. Um, I'll find that there is uh, kind of just a stuck in the in the sand. I'm not going anywhere. You can't make me move on both sides. Yeah. And yeah. there are other people that are just like, well, I go to the service because it's convenient. I'm yeah. like, okay, I'm glad you've thought through it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, I'm sort of in that category. I go to the church to the service that's convenient. So then uh, he gives an example from the Bible. Uh, he says, he's talking about Paul going to Athens when he preaches and how he didn't take any action against the idolatry there and how Paul just, he didn't kick down, uh, this, uh, quoting Luther, talking about Paul, he did not kick down a single one of the, and he's talking about the idols, uh, with his foot. Rather, he stood up in the middle of the marketplace and said they were nothing but idolatrous things and begged the people to forsake them. Yet he did not destroy one of them by force. So, and he gives gives a couple more examples along this lines. It talks about how he and uh, talks about his how he dealt with the papists and the indulgences yeah. and so forth. Um, and so he at the end he gives this prediction on on uh, at the end of the second sermon, and he talks about uh, commenting on the way the law grew in the early church after Saint Augustine. And he says, and he gives actually the history of, of, you know, Augustine established that everything by faith. But then he talks about Jerome, I think it is. Jerome mm-hmm. was like a year or two, a uh, hundred years after um, Augustine, within a hundred years or so. And so then, Jerome was after Augustine. Yeah. And he says, uh, and Jerome started introducing laws back into the system. And he says, one law grew a thousand laws until they have completely buried us under laws. And this is what will happen here too. One law will soon make two, two will increase to three, and so forth. And uh, I have found uh, in a church that's healthy and has trust and faith in in how God is at work, uh, you, you would ask to see their policy book. 
um, of what's allowed and not allowed in that church. And it might be just a couple pages. Yeah. And you see another church that's had um, conflicts and, and there's been this legislation of activity. Um, that church often is not as healthy. It has a super thick policy book and they've tried through laws to mandate change. Yeah, yeah. And and that's what he's predicting is going to happen. If through coercion, through force, um, we demand things of our brothers, this will just become a place that will overwhelm, and, uh, overwhelm us with rules. Um, he says, uh, before making that prediction, he makes the statement that love therefore demands that you have compassion on the weak as all the apostles had. Yeah. And, and so... Here in 1522, uh, change has come into Wittenberg through force, through coercion, and Luther's reacting to that by saying that uh, successful change is only going to come about through love um, and patience. Now, how how long will you be patient for? Um, that that's you know a struggle with anybody that says you know um, I'm going to keep teaching, I'm going to get preaching, and and through it all, um, I'm going to help my weaker brother. Uh, when at one point do you just say, I'm done, I'm tired, I'm not changing him, uh, we're moving on. I think that's going to be later on in the life of Luther, one of the struggles he does have yeah. is that that just wearing out of his patience. Yeah. Let's look at the third sermon. So, and we are going to start getting through these faster because now they're going to... Start um, building on each other. They, yes. Yeah. So we've kind of laid some foundation stuff and now the the rest of the sermons go a little bit faster yeah so let's uh yeah we'll start picking this up real quick here uh starts by going back to the difference between must and free uh and we talked about that already must are absolutely needed love requires that no one should be dragged to them or away from them by the hair uh for can drive no man to heaven or beat him into it with a club and then he spends the rest of the third sermon talking about the issues of freedom and these are items that must not be forbidden and so he, celibacy shouldn't be forbidden yeah yeah, uh, and it's a simple. It goes to a simplified version of what he talked about uh, in his uh, in his treatise on monastic vows. And then the subject of images, statutes, mosaics, paintings. Luther says it's okay to have them or not, although he'd prefer to not have them. Uh, but he goes through a long paragraph outlining uh, arguments for abolishing, uh, and he, then he gives an example where Paul where Paul allows images to stay. You know, mm-hmm. and that, that was sort of interesting. And then the uh, and then, you know, he, the, the, so that's pretty much it, right? It's, so he's speaking to the work of a pastor is to preach for something or against it and, and then let God's work do its work among the laity and the change will come, he thinks, in the life of a congregation, not through the pastor saying, we are now going to do this, but from the laity who have heard the word preached who now say, we should start doing these things. So the, those, those first three sermons are pretty much the basis for everything else that gets said. And, and so I'm gonna. We're just gonna quickly go back. There are issues that are must, like uh, like we must not imagine that we are providing gifts to God through actions like the mass. Uh, but more important than that must is the need to address it through love, allowing it's, God to work through Scripture uh, rather than using force. And then there are issues like free, which is the freedom to remain uh, celibate or not celibate. To, so a monk or a nun. Who, who takes a vow of celibacy, they should be given the freedom to keep that vow um, of celibacy or not, and yeah. not demanded of them that they all get married. And, and so this freedom needs uh, us to be confident that, that it's Scripture that allows us to be free. And that's that we have the word directly from God in Scripture that we are, so there has to be confidence in that so that the the, the fear of, um, of Unnecessary. So freedom where there shouldn't be freedom is something to avoid. 
But freedom where there should be freedom is something that should be pursued. Yeah. But he's, he's also careful that when you pursue that freedom, that is your, like we'll say vows. Uh, if, if somebody has taken a vow to be celibate and then they choose not to be celibate because of the, they need to make sure that they are well grounded in scripture. So they have the confidence of God's word to move forward. So, so that they, they don't harm their conscience right. by breaking a vow that yeah. they thought they yes. would be damned so by they, breaking. So they don't end up tortured in the future. Now, sermons four through eight uh, use the same logic then to continue to just discuss issues like eating meat on Friday. Now that's a free that's free to do or not. Uh, so and then taking communion of both bread and wine, he said it must be administered, but uh, it has to be done with patience and love. And and so if we administer both bread and wine, we can't demand that they take both bread and wine. Yeah. So he's saying, as clergy, we're going to offer both, but we're not going to require you to take both bread and wine. So if you take the bread and you're uncomfortable taking the wine because of your conscience, we're going to allow you not to take the wine. And then in the sixth sermon, so that's that's pretty much knocks out the, uh, the I think the fifth, Four and five, fourth yeah. and five. Uh, in the sixth sermon, he addresses the preparation for communion. And uh, now you have to sort of go back. And the Pope required all Christians days of obligation. Yeah. And, and so now Pope had required all Christians get communion every Easter, uh, which require also that everyone would make confession of their sins. Um, before they would take communion. And Luther claims this is wrong. Uh, we should only have communion when we believe God steps in for us and stakes all he has in his blood for us. Luther um, is convinced that the church must always offer communion, but that the one who comes forward to receive it should come when he's well prepared. And so he is, when he talks about we should only have communion when we believe, he's not talking about when a church should offer it. Um, we don't take this as exercise for why a church should only offer communion a couple times a year. He thinks it should be offered regularly. But the question is, how often should a person take it? Yeah, and, and here he gives a little bit of guidance. And, and he says, communion is for those who suffer tribulation, physical or spiritual, physically, physically through the persecution of men, spiritually through despair of conscience, outwardly or inwardly, when the devil causes your heart to be weak, timid, and discouraged so that you do not know how you stand with God and when he casts your sins in your face. He finishes by saying, in such terrified and trembling hearts alone, God desires to dwell. That was sort of an interesting... Yeah, so if you uh, are someone who is without any trouble in your heart or any longing for spiritual food, he says you should abstain from the Lord's Supper until you have that um, anguish of heart or desire for spiritual food. Yeah, so if you're comfortable in your... Because we're all sinners. And if you're comfortable in your sins, well, then you really have, you need to, you, you have no business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? So, um, so the seventh sermon continues with a short discussion on the fruit of communion, which is love, basically warning the people of Wittenberg that they have not shown much love to one another, that the fruit of the Lord's Supper is not there because they haven't been uh, participating in the right way. And then the final sermon, the eighth sermon, he goes back and talks about confession. And we've talked about confession over, and he just sort of goes over what he's talked about over and over again. And it's obvious to me, reading this, that this is something that he feels needs to constantly be hit on with the way he keeps coming back to it. Now, he does not mention Andreas Karlstadt in the sermons. Um, but the people who would be listening would recognize that these sermons contradicted Karlstadt on many major points. Yeah, like, you know, Karlstadt insisted that communion must be given in both the bread and the wine, or taken, really. It has to be taken in both the bread and the wine. And Luther is like, well, no, you can't force that. 
Um, he insisted that the pictures and the statues had to be removed. And Luther says, no, no, that's the point of freedom. They could be a snare, but claim the method for removing them should be through the preaching of the gospel, highlighting that images did nothing for us. Now, one of the repercussions of all this was a guy named Fabricius? Fabricius Capito. Yeah, so he was a, a representative of the Archbishop of Mainz, and he was actually, uh, you know, so he's with the Pope. He's a, he's a supporter of the papal positions, and he was an opponent of Luther, and he was always complaining about Luther and citing revolution and bloodshed. And so he shows up in Wittenberg to see Luther come back, to see how things are going to go. And the Archbishop of Mainz is the superior to Wittenberg, ecclesial uh, supervision. So when, I think that's the case, so when he's coming, he's, he's exercising his authority as a representative of the Archbishop of Mainz to investigate what's going on. But he's really doing it for the purpose of catching Luther in a wrong. Yeah. And, and after seeing how Luther handled things with the eight Invocavit sermons, Capito became much more approving of Luther's teaching, eventually becoming a leader in the evangelical movement in Strasbourg. So, and so with the Invocavit sermons, not only does Luther restore order to Wittenberg, but he achieved a newfound respect, especially among his adversaries, who saw that Luther was not there to incite violence, but in fact was there to preach the gospel. Luther's return to Wittenberg also introduced a new era where Luther relied more heavily on the other theologians at the University of Wittenberg. Over the next several years, Philip Melanchthon, Nicholas von Amsdorf, Justice Jonas, and John Bergenhagen, Bugenhagen. Bugenhagen, sorry, uh, took a larger and larger role in the clear definition of the Wittenberg evangelical theology. So that's pretty much the story of the Invocavit sermons. Uh, I want to say thanks. To Josh and to the folks at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamburg, Michigan for all their support. We also appreciate uh, James Kittleson's Luther the Reformer that gives some kind of texture uh, to the arrival of Luther into Wittenberg in the work of Andreas Karlstadt. Uh, Scott Hendricks, Martin Luther, Visionary Reformer, and then Luther's Works, uh, Volume 51. If you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email at graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, let us know if you'd like to host a road trip. We always like to meet folks. Uh, you can also catch us at graceontap-podcast.com or on Facebook. We post a lot of stuff there. That's a good place to catch what we're up to, uh, uh, Grace on Tap Podcast. We'd appreciate if you post uh, any reviews on iTunes. Always helps to get the word out. I think that does it. Prost. Prost.